You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, what do Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, and Ken Griffey Jr. all have in common? Yeah, yeah, they're baseball players, but if you guess that none of the iconic baseball players were unanimous Hall of Fame selections, you'd be right. So what gives? In the 1980s, the band Tommy Two-Tone topped the music charts with their one-hit wonder titled 8675309, Jenny, a song about a phone number that made the digits famous. But what about the people who actually owned that phone number? Well, we're going to check in on them. Legos aren't just for keeping toddlers busy or building a pretend castle anymore. No, no. Now they're building something else. Stronger teams in the workplace. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, you were a bit of an overachiever in school, I'm guessing, as evidenced by your infatuation with something called the accelerated reader system. Be honest. Did it come up on your first date with your now wife how many accelerated reader points you have? I mean, not to brag, but I did have quite a few accelerated reader points. Uh, you know, I'm a believer in accelerated reader. For people who don't know what it is, briefly explain what accelerated reader so was. So it was a program. It's I guess it's still around, but it was really popular uh, in the 90s and in the 2000s. And schools pretty much across the nation had it. It was a point system with a quiz. So you'd read a book. You take a quiz on the computer on a book, you get a certain amount of points based on how you did on the quiz. And so schools would use it for grades, like, you know, you have to get 50 points by the end of the nine weeks or something like that. Uh, And then there were always prizes in schools for kids that got the most. So I sort of bitterly always finished in second. So every single year, (laughs) I would be in second place and I'd have a lot of points. I'd have like, you know, 380 or something. And then the girl who always finished first would have like 870. Like it wasn't even close. Now, you got more points based on the size of the book. So, yeah, so I was reading, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings and you were out there reading Hank the Cowdog or whatever. No, no, no. Well, no, 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 no. That's, that's what I'm getting at. So according to the official records that I'm sure exist somewhere, I have read... Every single Chronicles of Narnia book, which was worth a lot. Yeah, and since we're an audio show, you did throw up the quote marks around the world. Did I actually read them? The world may never know. (laughs) Jay, with that said, though, did you ever have a teacher that refused to give out perfect grades? Yeah, I think everybody's had at least one of those teachers. You know, I'm a teacher today, and I definitely don't do that. Yeah, and Jay, it, it goes beyond simply academics. In some areas in life, the standard is impossible. And one such place that a perfect score has been impossible and has infuriated supporters while confusing just about everyone else is the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame of all places. Nestled in Cooperstown, New York, the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame serves the same function as really any Hall of Fame, the eternal enshrinement and ultimate recognition of the game's very best. To get into the hall, players must meet certain criteria. 
Aside from being statistically incredible, a player must have played for at least 10 seasons, have been retired for five years, and receive yes votes at a clip of 75% from the group that votes on who gets in and who doesn't, the gatekeepers, the over 400 members of the Baseball Writers Association of America. And you see, Jay, the Baseball Writers Association, well, they're kind of like that teacher I just referenced. Because until just a few years ago, with the unanimous induction of the New York Yankee legendary pitcher Mariano Rivera, the writers had never, I repeat, never unanimously voted in a baseball player to the Hall of Fame. The reasons for this range from the absurd to, frankly, the even more absurd. Take the case of pitcher Bob Feller. From the first year that we had the system of Hall of Fame voting that we know today, 1962. That year, Feller was thought to be a shoe-in as a unanimous selection. An incredible pitcher who was also the All-American athlete and just the All-American guy. Feller was an Iowa farm boy who pitched in the major leagues before he even graduated from high school. He volunteered for the Navy the day after Pearl Harbor, and he signed every autograph baseball that was requested of him. So Feller, you'd think, is the guy. You're wrong. He was not a unanimous selection. Supposedly and suspiciously, Feller was left off of at least 10 ballots. It was thought that because Feller was sometimes rude to members of the media, that some sports writers had just kind of lost theirs, leaving him off the ballot, maybe just for spite. But Jay, to truly understand the checkered and complicated history of the Hall of Fame voting system, let me read you a paragraph from the magazine The Sporting News from that same year. Among the more prominent players eligible for the first time are Bob Feller, the strikeout artist from Cleveland. Jackie Robinson, who played second base for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Phil Rizzuto, former shortstop of the New York Yankees. Did you catch that? Jackie Robinson, who played second base (laughs) for the Dodgers. You don't have to be a baseball fan, Jade, to know that that is not at all what made Jackie Robinson the icon we know him as today. Jackie broke the color barrier of baseball, and in many ways, sports in general in America. When it did come time for Jackie Robinson to be elected, he made it by just four votes. He barely got in. Jay, imagine looking at the life and impact of Jackie Robinson and saying to yourself, ah, yeah, I mean, he's okay. He's just not good enough for me to vote yes. And Jay, while blatant racism is at least easy to identify, other cases also make no sense and is maybe a little more nuanced. Like Babe Ruth. Perhaps the most famous baseball player of all time, only 95% of the vote in 1936 was a yes for Ruth. Or Cal Ripken Jr., the Iron Man himself who set the consecutive games played record at 2,632, a sports record that will never be touched. Cal was left off of eight ballots in 1997. (laughs) Even Ken Griffey Jr., the longtime Seattle Mariner who made baseball cool for an entire generation, only got 97% of the vote. So, Jay, why is the Hall voting process like this? Why is it so infuriating with an impossible, perfect standard? Well, a professor from NYU named Jay Van Bevel writes that it basically comes down to this. For over 400 writers, human beings with their own opinions and own moral compasses 
For all of them to agree on anything or anybody is asking the near impossible in a world filled with opinions and tribal actions. What makes sense to me might not make sense to you. And while that's no less infuriating to sort through for baseball fans, it at least makes a little bit of sense. I mean, we do live in a world, Jay, where Philadelphia Eagles fans famously booed Chris Kringle himself, Santa Claus, at a Christmas game in Philly. So, yeah, we're lucky if we ever agree on anything. Well, this definitely reminds me of movie reviews, right? Because anytime you read a movie review site like Rotten Tomatoes, where they compile a lot of movie reviews, and you're reading like a genuinely good film that everyone likes, there's always like one guy who has to rag on it. Yeah, I think it's like Toy Story or Toy Story 2, which is a, both of them, perfect films. There's like one guy who hated both of them. And so he ruined the perfect score of both of them. Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that in your youth, you were probably someone who made a lot of prank calls. Am I right on that? You're right, but it, it wasn't technically me making the call. It was, it was typically Arnold Schwarzenegger. So what I would do <laughs> is there used to be these sound boards that you could find where you would you'd call somebody and then there were like quotes from somebody, like 50 sound clips that you could hit. And that person would talk to the person. So someone would answer the phone and you'd hit, oh, poor baby, or all, the, all these Arnold Schwarzenegger things. That was a, that was a really bad Arnold. I'm typically better at Arnold. <laughs> yeah, it was a good thing that yeah, you had the soundboard because that, uh, that doesn't sound like Arnold standard. Schwarzenegger Whew. at all. Well, Dave, the 1980s produced a lot of one-hit wonders, but one of the most famous of these was a song by Tommy Two-Tone called 8675309 Jenny. The band didn't really ever release a song after this one that would get anywhere close to the hit status. Uh, in fact, Dave, today, if you look on Spotify at Tommy Two-Tone's profile, the song 8675309 has over 75 million plays, and their second most played song is just a live version of 8675309. But the third <laughs> most played song only has 158,000 total plays. So this is by definition a one-hit wonder. So in the song, the singer is lamenting over whether or not to dial a phone number scribbled on the wall for someone named Jenny, fantasizing about calling her and sweeping her off of her feet. Although it doesn't say this straight up in the song, it sort of implied that the protagonist found this number on a bathroom stall, which sort of raises a lot of questions about who Jenny is. But ultimately, Dave, this song absolutely skyrocketed to the top of charts. And while the number was seemingly random, there were a number of people in the United States who had this phone number as their phone number. And as you would imagine, this was a nightmare situation for owners of that number across different area codes. And the fact-checking site Snopes compiled a list of instances of this happening. In an article from Brown University's newspaper from 1999, two students were profiled who had the number attached to their room, Johannes Mirza and Nina Clement, who reported that they received an average of five messages a day, plus a handful of hang-up calls, ranging anywhere from guys seeking a date to callers just playing the song over the receiver. In 2004, Spencer Potter, a New Jersey DJ, actually specifically requested the number for his radio station and got it, and it quickly morphed into a lesson on be careful what you wish for. 
Potter reports that almost the second he plugged the phone into the wall, it began ringing off the hook. And even up into the year 2000, when he was interviewed by Snopes, he was still receiving up to 30 (laughs) calls a day, mostly in the dead of night from people drunk at bars who had heard the song and wondered, do you think anyone actually has this number? The lore around the song has grown up in recent years too, Dave, among all of this. And the rumors range from Jenny was a real person and a real ex-girlfriend of the lead singer of Tommy Two-Tone, and he specifically wrote the song with her number in an act of revenge, to that the real Jenny actually got a restraining order taken out in an attempt to get the song pulled from the radio, to that the number was owned by a sheriff with a daughter named Jenny who sued the band because of the song. And although the rumor also exists that because of the overwhelming number of calls to the number that it has been discontinued, this is just simply not the case. This number is still assigned today across many area codes. In 2009, the New Jersey DJ Spencer Potter from earlier actually auctioned off his DJ business on eBay specifically to sell the number. And a Philadelphia resident actually holds the rights to both toll-free versions, both the 800 and 888 version, and has publicly stated that he values the number uh, in the millions of dollars. But since you can't really sell phone numbers, this is sort of an impossible value to nail down. In 2018, a pizza restaurant and museum combo called Totally 80s Pizza was able to track down the local owner of the digits, a real estate agent who was tired of prank calls, and secure the number as a marketing ploy for their business. A national plumbing franchise called Benjamin Franklin Plumbing was able to secure the rights to the number that they advertised as Call 8675309-BENNY instead of Jenny. And two separate New England plumbing companies actually went to legal war over the number, with both of them advertising the number in different area codes on each other's turf, an issue that had to be sorted out by a federal judge. But one story stands out among the rest to me, Dave, the owner of the digits in Toledo, Ohio, a woman ironically named Jenny McPherson. Jenny was only 26 years old when the song first came out. And really, what are the chances here that her number, a woman named Jenny, would be the number from the song? McPherson, who owned the number long before the song was even released, claims that when the song first topped the charts, she was receiving upwards of seven to 8,000 calls wow. a day and went through hundreds of cassette tapes on her answering machine. McPherson claims that the calls continued for decades, dwindling to the hundreds of calls a day to hundreds of calls a week. And while Jenny McPherson, for some reason, just never changed her number, the number has a strange power even now across the nation for those that still own it. And while the messages may have tapered off, the legend lives on at midnight in a crowded bar when the song comes over a jukebox. All it takes is for one guy to ask, hey, I wonder what would happen if we called that number. You know what's interesting is when you set something to music, like a number or an address or something, just the way our brains work, we can remember it more easily. So like everyone knows that number. But something I think about all the time, and I haven't seen this commercial in over two decades, is Scruff McGruff. Do you remember Scruff McGruff? <laughs> He's like a detective dog or something. Yeah, he was right? like a detective dog in Chicago or something. So I don't even know what he, what he was. I think he was kind of like Smokey the Bear, but he was maybe for like 
some kind of detective. I don't know. He, See, he that's was why like it's a bad advertising. He was the crime. It neither is. Neither one of us have any clue what he was even but about. Here's what I'm getting at exactly. So it only half worked. But there was a jingle. Like I'll sing it sometimes. Like when I'm just like in the shower. Scruff McGruff, Chicago, Illinois six zero six five two. So I know the zip code. So I don't know the address of how to write to Scruff, but I know his zip code or even why you'd need to contact him. Jay, what was something that you loved to play with when you were a little kid? Well, I know you're going to do this segment on Legos, and I have to say that I was really into Legos growing up. What if you just totally ruined the segment and you went, yeah, I know you're going to do this uh, segment on Legos, but I actually, uh, yeah, I don't know if you know or not, but Legos are in the workplace now. <laughs> uh, but Jay, for myself and many, many other kids like yourself, the toy of choice, you're right, Legos. You know, the colorful building blocks that can be turned into just about anything. If you're good at following the instructions, like I'm sure you were, your final result can be a spaceship or a castle. If you're like me and your final result is not following any kind of instructions, well, it's just kind of an artistic expression fueled by your own creative rules. But Jay, in the early 2000s, believe it or not, Legos almost went away. Lego A&S, the Danish maker of the toy, was on the brink of bankruptcy. Fast forward, and last year, 2021, Lego turned it around and was anything but struggling. Lego posted a profit of $7 billion. That's up from $2 billion in just 2010. So how did Lego do it? Well, Jay, Lego reimagined who its customer was. Lego decided to market itself to adults. Gone were Lego branded items like backpacks that weren't construction sets, and in were Lego sets based on popular things like Harry Potter, Seinfeld, and Star Wars. Lego started adding famous landmark sets too, complicated builds that weren't necessarily not for kids, but were definitely not just for kids. The latest big driver, though, in the growing reimagining of Legos, Jay, isn't the popular sets based on movies or a Lego set of the Eiffel Tower. It's Legos in the workplace. Companies have started to integrate Legos into the planning of their products and the development of their employees. One work Lego program called Lego Serious Play, or LSP, is a training tool where employees are asked to address company concerns or showcase their new ideas by first building a small Lego structure and then explaining why they did what they did. And this isn't just a startup Silicon Valley tech idea either. It's used by big and small companies, including the U.S. Naval Warfare Division, Harvard Business School, Companies like Google, Ernst & Young, Microsoft, Visa, Lexus, Procter & Gamble, the list goes on and on. All in all, Jay, there are over 13,000 certified LSP instructors worldwide, up from just over 2,000 in 2015. And workshops can cost anywhere from $500 to $5,000 or $10,000 for a company. Jessica Millmeister, Director of Enterprise Quality at McLean, Virginia-based government services company V2X Inc., began using Lego elements following an LSP demonstration. Individuals would come to her office to discuss an issue with her, and then she'd ask them to build the problem after they were done explaining it to her verbally. She wanted them to then explain what each brick meant in the build. 
I often find that they build the model with assumptions that were not already explained to me, she told the Wall Street Journal. This allows us to dig in and find the true root cause of their problem. Now, of course, Jay, while scientific studies back up this Lego usage, showing that it can lead to better problem-solving skills and improved communication, Legos don't solve everything. Some Lego sets, like the set that experts call the most difficult Lego set ever created, the Roller Coaster 10261, that's 10,261 pieces, it weighs over 30 pounds, and as of this recording, Jay, has caused at least one reported divorce. <laughs> well, I get it, because when I'm in Target and I'm in the toy aisle with my kids and I walk by that Mandalorian spaceship set, I'm like, maybe. You know, I have a friend who, he and his wife, like, they spent a long time putting together. It was a Star Wars one. It was either the Millennium Falcon or uh, the Death Star. It was like a big build. It took them a long time. Spent a lot of money on it. Um, and so they, they built this together. It was like a, a bonding thing for their marriage. So they put it in this enshrined spot in their apartment. They left one night, left the window open. And the wind got so strong that it blew it over. And so it went from a really positive experience in their marriage to putting their marriage on the rocks. Like, I think they actually started therapy, no joke, because that thing fell. <laughs> True or false, growing up, you hated Lego sets because you wanted the final product to just be built when you opened up the box. Thousand percent true. <laughs> totally true. Like the idea of building your own toy, like uh, it just doesn't, doesn't sit right with you. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. We are on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Trump. We'll see you next week. Scruff McGruff, Chicago, Illinois, 60652.